Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome, everyone. I'm really excited about our guest tonight. Not everyone will know that Jonathan Sumption was a historian before he was a lawyer. Um, he was a fellow of Magdalen College, Oxford, before his career at the bar. He's had one of these amazing careers that don't seem very common anymore. He's not only the first justice of the Supreme Court to have been installed without ever having been a full-time judge. For the past 43 years, on the side, he has written the definitive history of the Hundred Years' War, as you do. Um, which is recently completed. Volume 5 uh, was published just some weeks ago, and we are going to be talking about that uh, this evening. But one thing I feel I have to mention, given that if you have walked up the staircase tonight, you will notice we have our collection of independent thinkers that is carefully curated lining the staircase. Uh, and we have everyone from uh, Plato to Karl Marx in this group. Uh, and we have put a portrait of Lord Sumption in that group. Will it be taken away tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to get a photo of you next to it. He was one of the few that we actually commissioned to add to that group because we certainly felt that um, having been closely involved in the COVID experience, as we all were, his bravery standing up for what he perceived to be a, a very bad policy and making taking a great personal risk and risk to his reputation one of the very few people of his stature to make that case was an extraordinary thing to do. And uh, I think we probably will have to talk about that. Um, welcome, Lord Sampson. I'm glad to be here. So volume five of your hundred years, well, we've actually got it just behind you. So if those people watching on the, on the video will, will see it just by your head. <laughs> it's the most extraordinary achievement to have completed that. I guess I have to ask, first of all, why, of all of the things to do over a 43-year period during such a busy career, you felt that that particular period of history was where you wanted to spend your time? Well, it's what I taught when I was, a, when I was an academic historian at Oxford. I mean, I actually taught um, everything from the Roman Empire, from the fall of the Roman Empire, to the Reformation, a period of about 1,000, 1,200 years. Um, 
But uh, the only period about which I could really speak with authority was the Middle Ages. The rest of it, uh, I had to muggy things up about a week ahead of my students. Um, but you know, that is a familiar experience uh, in academics. They are specialists, uh, and their students are generalists. It's kind of before the period where most people's common knowledge starts. Yes. It's lots of Henrys, and it's covered in the Shakespeare history plays. Well, pe people know people know about the period from Shakespeare, which is a slightly dangerous thing, um, because Shakespeare was a, a semi-accurate historian. His historical standards were roughly equivalent to those of the Daily Mail. Your <laughs> <laughs> assumption has very kindly agreed that we are ask me anything rules tonight. So we don't have to stick only to the history. And what I'm hoping to do in the conversation we just have about to have now is jump sometimes elegantly, sometimes less elegantly between the Hundred Years' War and contemporary controversies. So we'll see how that goes. Do you think the whole, you know, the period you're covering here for all of this time is mostly war with occasional periods of less war? Mm. Um, well, war is crucial. Yeah. War is the origin of the state. Basically, until um, the beginning of the 20th century, the two principal collective activities of mankind were religion and war. The purpose of the state was to serve certainly the second of those things, but usually the first as well. So, you know, war is at the heart of the experience of societies. It is what created the state, which it was war that made it necessary for the state to find a way of organizing the resources of a country in a way that in during the Hundred Years' War, for example, the English government initially did very much better than the French, which is why, although they were a smaller, less populous, and less rich country, they won their battles initially. Tables were reversed later. But, um, uh, the war is absolutely critical to an understanding of the creation of the state and of human societies. And that doesn't just apply to this country, it applies to pretty well every country. And I suppose among the population, or at least among the more educated parts of the population, victories in war were an unambiguous good. There, yes. There were no anti-war protesters. In there the were no anti-war protesters. Ages. There were people who thought it was too expensive and they'd rather not pay the taxes that were necessary to fund them. Medieval societies had a completely different attitude to war. They regarded, we, re, we regard today war as an unwanted catastrophe that periodically breaks in on us against our wishes. Uh, war was regarded as the norm. It was regarded as the normal way of settling international disputes and actually quite a few um, internal disputes. People didn't say, this is terribly wasteful. We could be spending the money on new universities, the National Health Service, or whatever. Um, basically, it was not felt that the duty of the state extended to relieving poverty or to, or to promoting human happiness. Uh, therefore, there was nothing wrong with war. It was a perfectly reasonable thing to spend what money you had on it. Um, it's it's a, an attitude it's quite hard to work your way into given so many aspects of our current rather more convenient and certainly more enjoyable mentality. Mm. Although I feel like it should be said at this point, given the news of the past week, 10 days, what feel like 
pretty primal wars over territory between peoples that don't really have any hope of seeing eye to eye are as, as much a feature hills. of today as they used yes, to. It's as old as the hills. In the 14th century, the English adopted what one can only describe as terrorist tactics to try and um, batter the French government into submitting to their demands. They basically conducted huge raids in which they indiscriminately killed large numbers of people and burnt whole villages and so on. This is what we would call terrorism. And it's, it really wasn't until the, the 18th century that war became a battle between organized armed forces. We've now tended to revert to an earlier pattern in which quite often both sides, but, but almost invariably one of, at least one side, uh, is a disorganized group uh, of people. I mean, Hamas is probably a good example. They're semi-organized, and the object is indiscriminate violence because they do not have the resources to confront whatever the enemy is uh, in with the same sort of weapons. I mean, if you are uh, a semi-state and the underdog, this is how you wage war. Uh, England was... 100% of a state in the 14th century. They still waged war that way. So you think even what we saw on October the 7th, killing of infants, kidnapping of elderly people, those the, there would be no qualms about that in no, the 1400s? I mean, there were theoretical qualms about killing um, priests and pilgrims, but that was it. Basically, everyone else was fair game. <laughs> So, I mean, this was pretty brutal. I mean, we, we have an image of the late Middle Ages as an age of chivalry. Actually, chivalry was a purely decorative concept. Uh, it was, uh, it was a, a form of aristocratic showing off. It had almost no uh, implications for the conduct of war, except uh, that it governed the rules about taking prisoners and ransoming them. Taking prisoners was very profitable. You could sell them. Um, so apart from that, basically chivalry was a, yeah. was a decorative illusion. Um, it was actually uh, a, a very grubby and violent period. Yeah. On the whole, I don't believe that humanity changes very much. Uh, the, the, the technological possibilities uh, which, in, which enable them to achieve their objectives have changed quite radically, obviously. Uh, but their ambitions uh, uh, and their moral sensibilities have not changed at all. And we can see that all around us. So I take it you don't believe in progress? I believe in progress in many fields, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> when you talked about the, the, the period of moving to a more organized warfare, and now some of today's conflicts seem almost reverting, do you think that is now where we're headed uh, in a kind of bigger picture? Yes, do you I think do. We are the, the cycle of that kind of post-Enlightenment era of, of wars is, is over. Uh, conflicts between disciplined armies on both sides. Uh, I'm not such a, certainly not suggesting we won't see more of those. Uh, that would be a tempting fate. But um, uh, all the wars since the Second World War, possibly the Korean War is an exception, have been wars involving um, uh, loose associations of 
guerrillas and terrorists, basically, uh, either fighting other similar groups or, or organized armies like the Western armies in Iraq and Afghanistan. A lot of what you're writing about in the history is also about the formation of these nations of England and France. Do you think that nations are also slightly receding uh, or in danger now no. compared to how they On used the to contrary, be? On the contrary, I think nations, after a period in which they were thought to be rather old hat, um, are coming back. Uh, I think that national self-interest is reasserting itself in quite a big way. Which is a good thing? I don't think it's either a good thing or a bad thing. I think for an observer, the important point is that it's a thing. <laughs> Since we, we touched on the, the current conflict, I, I feel it, uh, it would be remiss as a journalist not to ask what you think the sort of legal situation should be back here in the UK as regards protest and talk around Israel-Palestine. There's been a lot of discussion of whether rhymes like uh, Palestine shall be free from the river to the sea should be illegal as they are supporting a terrorist organization or implying uh, the destruction of Israel. What, where do you think the line should be? Well, there's been an awful lot of nonsense talked about this, um, some of it coming from surprising authorities like the Home Secretary. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Hamas is a prescribed organization. It's illegal uh, to support their objectives. I don't think it's illegal it's illegal to support them. I don't think that it's illegal to support legally, lawfully, I without violence, the cause which they support violently. I do not think it's illegal to say that Palestine should be a distinct state. I don't think it's illegal to say that Palestinians uh, have uh, a legitimate grievance. I'm not, these are not necessarily my views, but they are views which it's perfectly legal to express. The mere fact that most Palestinians uh, live on, in an area, Gaza, um, which is controlled by Hamas, does not mean to say that everything that you say uh, in favor of the Palestinians uh, is necessarily to be treated as equivalent to supporting Hamas. So a great many of the slogans, the demonstrations, and the flags that we've seen in the streets are not illegal at all at least not on that ground. So are you worried that normal freedom of expression is being imperiled? Well, I don't think so far it's been imperiled. I think what we've seen so far uh, is some uh, rather silly and ill-considered statements from people who should know better. Um, we've got to see how the situation develops. My impression, for what it's worth, is that we are tending slightly to recede from the initial feeling that um, that all good men and true must necessarily support Israel. Uh, I think that a realization of the humanitarian consequences of the threatened Israeli invasion of Gaza has caused quite a lot of people, not everybody, but a lot of people to pause. Uh, and on the face of it, it looks as if an invasion of Gaza would have some of the indiscriminate qualities that people quite rightly objected to. Uh, when practiced by Hamas. I'm going to take us back to the late Middle Ages now. Joan of Arc is a... So how's that for a transition? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Joan of Arc is perhaps the standout um, section of your volume five, the latest volume. She's and, the most interesting phenomenon, I agree. And it's just a most extraordinary story. So I thought, and I think oddly quite a contemporary one in some respects. Can you just give us a summary of it? How, well, how, did, how did the Joan the, of Arc phenomenon happen? The Middle Ages happen? basically believed that women were unfit for any responsible job other than head of state. You could be a queen, <laughs> but you couldn't be anything else. Um, uh, Joan of Arc clearly, spectacularly broke that convention. Uh, she was a 17-year-old peasant um, who reversed the course of the war in the space of a year. And that was a, a, a very remarkable thing. It, it's, she challenges objective history. Um, I mean, a, a no serious historian can really believe in miracles, however religious he may be. And I don't. Uh, on the other hand, uh, some of the things that she did are difficult to explain short uh, of divine intervention. So what does one to do if the probabilities point to something that you can't possibly believe in? I think the answer is that in war there are risks and there is bluff. Um, and people who take risks and, and uh, try, try bluffing often get somewhere. It's usually luck. It's not an act that can be sustained for that long, but it wasn't sustained for very long in Joan of Arc's case. Her military career lasted less than a year. She, I mean, Napoleon said that in war, three quarters of it is morale and the rest of it is manpower and all the rest. Uh, and I think a lot of experienced soldiers and certainly a lot of historians would agree with that. So she she was a sort of influencer type. Oh yes, I mean, she, she became this. She became a huge celebrity, age seventeen. Absolutely, she transforms no... the morale of the French and completely destroyed that of the English. And that was something that not only the French thought, but the English agreed with. Um, we, we had, there's lots of evidence of that. The Duke of Bedford, who was the regent who ruled the English-occupied parts of France, in his post-mortem. On what had happened, said this is this woman was a miracle worker. He didn't think that she was inspired by God. The miracles were the work of the devil, um, but that she had supernatural powers, and that they destroyed the English morale was something that he regarded as self-evident. And the records that we have of the interrogation of English prisoners of war taken by the French around that time all bear out exactly the same mm. story. So morale she, matters hugely. So, but she's a seventeen-year-old um, girl. You describe her as anorexic, and she's illiterate. She's illiterate. Yeah. She dresses in men's clothes. Yes. Um, and she manages to get herself to the court of the Dauphin, and become this sort of mascot of the French within months. H how did she manage that? And what do you think we learn about our sort of susceptibility to these kind of Images and well, we learn ciphers. a lot about the susceptibility of late medieval people uh, to these images, but I think not a great deal about more modern, modern and perhaps more rational periods. Is it ridiculous to look at someone like Greta Thunberg? Yes, yes, uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can anticipate the rest of your okay, question. Okay, okay. <laughs> I mean, Greta Thunberg has this much uh, in common uh, with Joan of Arc. 
Joan of Arc was widely regarded by the professional soldiers as a damn nuisance. Uh, and they kept their councils of war when, in the middle of the night when she was in, in bed uh, or when she was somewhere else. Um, uh, and I think there's a lot of feeling among people who are actually serious uh, climate change authorities of the same sort about Greta Thunberg. But Greta Thunberg is a demonstrator. Um, Joan of Arc was a fairly active doer. Although she didn't actually fight. She didn't actually fight, no. She, well, she was in the middle of the melee, and she had a sword and axes and things, uh, but uh, she, never, she never killed anybody. Um, she told her judges that, and all the evidence bears it out. Um, she was there essentially as a, a morale booster and as a rather crude strategist. I say crude because she basically believed that in the full frontal attack against any enemy, um, uh, most generals try to choose the enemy's weak point. She believed in attacking the enemy's strong point because she believed God would give them victory. Uh, and people, it worked out well. It worked out well until she tried to take Paris by that method. Uh, when, when on the coronation march to Reims to crown Charles VII, all the towns opened their gates because she simply appeared in front of them and said, open your gates in the name of God. They had heard of her slightly exaggerated stories of her miracle working at Orléans in the Loire Valley. They were terrified, so they turned against their garrisons, threw them out and opened their gates. And that worked a dream until she came to the walls of Paris. They didn't open the gates. Paris was the great capital of the English and the Dukes of Burgundy, and the population was on side, and they, they fought back. Um, she uh, announced her mission, demanded that they open the gates, said that they would uh, be sent to hell by the God of justice if they didn't. And the response from a quite lowly crossbowman was, shall we now, you brassy trollop, uh, whereupon he loosed his crossbow and caused her quite serious injuries, which prevented her from taking any further part in the fighting. It was the beginning of the end for Joan it of was Arc. The, it, it damaged her credibility. Her brand. <laughs> her brand. One topic, that, that one event that took place in this huge sweep between the 1300s and the, and the mid-1400s, which you cover, was, of course, the uh, Black Death, the huge plague that ravaged both England and France. Do you think that was part of your background thinking when uh, our own um, plague, claimed plague, <laughs> took place in 2020? Do you think, and that's actually, uh, it is a serious question, that do you think your, your sense of history and sense of proportion that came with that affected how you reacted to that story when it started? Well, my sense of history told me that there had been an awful lot of epidemics which were at least as serious, usually more serious, than COVID. Uh, and it seemed to me, therefore, uh, that um, to overreact, to treat this as an occasion for closing down um, all, all social life uh, was frankly absurd. This was not, uh, it was a serious enough illness, but it was not unprecedented. And humanity had survived without inflicting these appalling tortures on itself, 
uh, perfectly satisfactory through much worse uh, epidemics. The Black Death was one example, but there are very many others. There is one similarity I, uh, uh, which is worth noting. Uh, during the Black Death, and in fact during other epidemics of bubonic plague of much the same sort in the late Middle Ages, um, people used to believe that they had suffered a terrible infliction sent to them by God. It was due to their sinfulness. So they organized processions around the walls of the towns in which they lived, in which they flagellated themselves. And during the COVID inquiry, we flagellated ourselves quite unnecessarily, in my view. There were more sensible approaches than lockdowns. But what the two incidents had in common uh, was a feeling that if you didn't mortify the flesh, if you didn't inflict um, some misfortune on yourselves, uh, you were going to uh, be a sucker for this disease. Um, people did it without any kind of religious motivation, so that's an important difference. But the desire uh, to inflict damage on yourself in order to ward off um, a what you believe to be an impending catastrophe is a fundamental feature of human psychology at most historical times. Mm. Do you think there are, I mean, if, if we look at other dissenting figures of authority, um, I think you could almost observe a trend, which is that those people who have a broader learning, a broader interest than purely one particular branch of one particular science, tended to take a view more similar to yours. I mean, Sunetra Gupta, the scientist from Oxford, she is also a novelist and a, takes great interest in other parts of life. Do you think that's, there's something in that, that? I think the more experience you have, and history is essentially a source of vicarious experience, the more experience that you have of life as it was lived today and has been lived in the past, the more skeptical you are likely to be about any magic bullet solution. I mean, what was remarkable about COVID uh, was that um, the government in deciding upon lockdowns didn't even look at um, perfectly modern uh, e examples of reasons why you shouldn't do this. Um, it is absolutely clear that they never considered and discouraged other people from considering the downside, economic, financial, educational, social, mental health issues, cancer issues, uh, none of these things were considered. This was a classic example of an extreme magic bullet mentality. We are going to lock people down. We do not care what the collateral consequences might be uh, because we are only interested in one thing, which is reducing deaths from COVID. We don't mind if deaths from dementia go up, if deaths from untreated or undiagnosed cancer go up. I mean, it is the narrow, most narrow-minded conceivable approach to any major policy issue. Now, that's pretty remarkable. You don't need to go back to the 14th century in order to see why. Do you now think you, you tend to be quite modest in your claims when you, when you discuss this period, but three years and a bit on, do you now think you can say with confidence that you were right and made the right call? The well, I thought I could say that with confidence at the time, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> but um, I, I mean, I, I so yes. <laughs> I think that the, the the proportion of people who think lockdowns were a good idea has diminished, but a majority still think that. I also think uh, that I converted very few people. And I, I, well, what I did do, I suspect, was cheer up a lot of people who already agreed with me. Um, some of you... <laughs> Sounds as if some of you may be in this room. <laughs> I mean, you, reflecting, though, on that, just finally, it, you, you mentioned when we were talking at another moment that people still come up to you all the time mm. to talk about that Yes, period. they do. But Even they, more than, more than anything else you've done. There are always people who agree. Lots of people come up to me and say, you know, thank you for what you said uh, during the lockdown. And I got a huge post back, you know, 200 letters a week about... Um, and, I mean, I would think 90% of them were supportive. I'm not suggesting for a moment that this is a, a statistically representative sample of the British population. I'm sure it wasn't. But the sort of people who take the trouble to write you a letter are people who uh, want to say more power to your elbow. And that's, obviously, that's cheering. You feel you're doing something useful, um, even if it's not persuading the, the people on the other side of the argument. Do you feel changed by that? experience do you feel do you look at your i've never society? done anything similar before and i can't imagine that i'm ever going to do something similar again but do you do you look at society differently with greater trepidation do you feel like the kind of institutions of our liberal society are more fragile than you had thought they were is, is there any sense that it's changed your yes worldview? i mean i i was surprised by the readiness that people had to submit to this um and i think that it's uh, I have always um, been fascinated and appalled in roughly equal measure by the political writings of Thomas Hobbes ever since I was a teenager when I first read, read Leviathan. Hobbes, everybody should read Hobbes because he is the most persuasive master of the English language and of advocacy that I know. Uh, he is quite extraordinary. You follow his syllogisms one after the other, you agree with them all, and you suddenly end up in a place you didn't want to be. Um, and you say, blimey, how did I get here? And that's a tribute to Hobbes's extraordinary persuasiveness and his amazingly skillful use of language. But, but the serious point about Hobbes is that he believed that life was horrible and that fear of, of, its, of its horrible qualities was what made people accept a despotism. Hobbes believed in absolute government, uh, and he quite correctly noted that fear was what drove people to support absolute governments. Now, we have actually managed, since Hobbes wrote in the middle of the 17th century, uh, to live our public lives on quite different principles. We've managed without fear and without the systematic application of coercion uh, to achieve a moderately civilized system of political discourse and decision making. And, and that's very remarkable. But what struck me about the COVID epidemic was that quite suddenly you found yourself reverting to a pattern which I thought we had abandoned for nearly 300 years. 
And that, that was a dismaying experience, and it was one reason why um, I took you know, a reasonably public and prominent role in criticizing this. Uh, and, and I actually believe in the principle that uh, former judges should, on the whole, not engage in politically controversial things unless they are of a strictly constitutional or legal nature. But it seems to me that everybody has a threshold beyond which the, the, the issue is so serious that you have to stand up and be counted. And I felt that this was a change in the collective mentality of not just this nation, but European nations and North American nations generally, um, which had really sinister implications for the future of our, on the whole, liberal methods of government. And it seemed to me this was far more important than any conventional limitations on what former judges ought to say. Do you think we're going to get it back, that liberal mood, or do you think it is broken? I'm both an optimist and a pessimist on this. It depends on what your time frame is. Um, Let's say my lifetime, for example. <laughs> how, how, what's your, what's your, what's your state of health? <laughs> um, I Let's think say the that, next 50 years, optimistic. I, I think that, the, I mean, that at the moment we are in a mood which progressively jettisons basic liberal positions like the observance of rules of procedure for government which are more important than the outcome of any particular issue. You've got to have a devotion to the rules which transcends your attachment to particular issues so that you do not regard it as an outrage when you lose on some, as you inevitably will. I also think that the classic liberal position on free speech is seriously undermined. I would expect these trends to continue for a while, certainly beyond my lifetime, uh, and possibly beyond yours, I don't know. What will happen, in my view, is that the current trend, which is common to both left and right, uh, to favor more authoritarian ways of doing things, to favor a view that society should only have one view. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...on something, and it is a political responsibility to determine what that view is going to be. All that is going to get worse. And I think that the ultimate result will be an authoritarian style of government uh, across Europe and North America. Uh, I think North America may well be the first place that one sees it in its ultimate culmination. And I think that at that point, people will say, we don't like this very much. Um, and at that stage, you will see a reversion uh, to uh, a a more considerate model of, of social existence. I can't say how long that's going to take, but it might be decades. One example currently that you've been in the news talking about, uh, which so might seem to go against what you're saying, in that um, it's about leaving a set of rules that you no longer think is being correctly applied, is the European Court of Human Rights. This, to people who take a different view would be a, a nice example of a liberal institution of uh, respecting rules beyond individual nations and so on, and yet you want the UK to lead it. Yes. Um, I think that, I mean, I don't think this is likely to happen, but I think it would be a good thing if it did. Um, uh, I am not against a, a rule-based system, and I'm not against human rights. Uh, I simply think that Human, we need to decide what human rights we want and to what degree we want them. Uh, at the moment, uh, the, the problem is not the convention itself, which is a collection of principles, uh, not a single one of which would I question in any way. Uh, what I oppose is the legislative process by which the Strasbourg Court, the European Court of Human Rights, has emancipated itself uh, from the only thing that the part states party to the convention ever agreed, which was the text of the convention. I do not think that it is the function of judges uh, to revise the laws, to bring them up to date. That is a function of representative institutions, certainly in a democracy. So I would favor uh, withdrawing from the European convention and substituting for it uh, an identical text, but simply uh, interpreting it responsibly in accordance with what it's intended to mean and not in accordance with a wider political agenda, which I'm afraid is the uh, animating spirit currently of the Strasbourg Court. I had hoped before that the Strasbourg Court uh, would learn from the occasions when, particularly this country, we have 
jibbed at what they've done. I'd hoped that they would, things would improve as a result of the Brighton Declaration and its uh, statement in favor of what was called rather pompously subsidiarity. Uh, I no longer believe that the Strasbourg Court is capable of independent reform. It's too ideological. So you, you don't mind the rules, but you think it's been politicized or they're being incorrectly applied? I think the point about rules is that they're designed to bring some kind of order to human affairs. Um, uh, if you have a rule which depends on whatever a legislator in Strasbourg uh, thinks it, should, it ought to be, the essential predictability uh, which rules are designed to achieve is gone. So, I mean, I, would, I have no problem about the notion of a foreign tribunal deciding whether our observance of human rights is adequate, provided that the foreign tribunal in question, the tribunal, whether foreign or domestic, provided that they follow the rules. I, what I object to is a situation uh, in which they require everyone else to follow rules of their own devising, but recognize no rules governing their own decisions. Do you think we should be renegotiating or reconsidering the Geneva Convention on Refugees as well? I don't know. Um, I certainly think that the Geneva Convention was made for a different world, a world in which travel uh, across national borders was a lot more difficult and a lot more expensive. I mean, the, I mean originally, asylum rules were designed for um, uh, you know, very prominent national leaders of rebellious movements like, for example, Kossuth, the great Hungarian nationalist of the 19th century. Then in the wake of the catastrophe involving millions of displaced persons at the end of the Second World War, there was a strictly temporary convention, a refugee convention, designed to enable these people to be resettled. Um, in 1951, that was changed so that it became a permanent institution um, and not limited to the displaced persons displaced by the Second World War. I think that people who agreed to that at the time did not appreciate uh, that with the disappearance of the European colonial empires, uh, a lot of the world would come into chaos, that people uh, suffering persecution uh, would become very numerous, millions and millions in many countries of the world, and that simultaneously the um, improvement and easing of the, the actual logistical difficulties of travel over long distances uh, would enable lots of them to make their way towards the remaining ordered parts of the world. So it sounds like you, you think the convention is no longer fit for purpose. It isn't fit for purpose. But whether one should uh, uh, depart from it is a different question. Um, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I confess that I have not studied this as carefully as I have studied the problems associated with the European Convention on Human Rights. I think it's obvious that the Refugee Convention was made for a world that no longer exists. I am much less certain about what we should do about that. We're going to go back to the late Middle Ages one last time. The whole series of volumes is about Britain or England and France, whether they were to become one country or not. There was a moment when it looked like there might be a 
dual monarchy in it, the um, Lancaster kings would manage to unify the kingdoms. Uh, that obviously didn't happen. Uh, we retreated and the channel became our border. You have a house in France. Uh, you spend a lot of time there. You, you were against Brexit, uh, even though you're now in favour of leaving the Strasbourg court. Um, do you feel like we are now separate from Europe since the Hundred Years' War? Well, before the Hundred Years' War, England was a European polity because it ruled a significant chunk of Western France. So it was never an island politically until the Hundred Years' War. Politically, it became one as a result of the war. But it, Britain, England, had always engaged with the continent. William Pitt the Younger was one of a number of people who remarked that the, the frontier of England and is actually on the Rhine. And he wasn't asserting a right to rule everything on the western side of the Rhine. He was saying that is, where, uh, on, that is the boundary on which our security depends. It's not the channel. So there's a mixture uh, of um, uh, pre-European integration with Europe uh, and insularity. Um, it's part of the dualism about British foreign policy that has always existed. The reason, or one of the reasons, why I think that Brexit was a mistake was that it is, I think, a repudiation of five centuries of intelligently conceived foreign policy in Britain. Um, the, the main policy of successive governments in Britain since the 16th century has been uh, to avoid a situation in which a single dominant power dominated the whole of continental Europe. That is why uh, we went to war with Louis XIV at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, with Napoleon at the beginning of the 19th century, and with Germany twice in the course of the 20th century. Um, and uh, what we have done is, first of all, by withdrawing, to remove from the European system the principal opponent of the federalization of Europe. We were undoubtedly the leading objectors to this, and we had actually successfully resisted it for many years. At the same time, so while we have contributed to what will over the next few years become the greater unification of Europe, and at the same time, we have abandoned any possible claim to influence what it does. So we have done something that, seemed, it seems to me, uh, has negated decades, centuries of serious thought about the strategic position of the United Kingdom in Europe. Would that you was a mistake. To, would you vote to rejoin? I think the problem about rejoining is that we wouldn't get the golden terms that, that were there when we, when we left. And that is a really serious problem. What I think will actually probably happen is that we will, over the next generation or two, conclude a succession of agreements with the European Union that will bring us closer to the European Union without actually being members. Um, and uh, I would applaud that personally. Um, uh, and eventually, it may well be that we will decide that we might as well join. 
and recover our, our insurance. I'm going to pause here for a moment, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as you can hear and see, having a conversation with Jonathan Sumption is the most extraordinary thing. You can ask him anything about any topic, <laughs> uh, to contemporary or any period of the past thousand years, and he will give you a perfectly formulated answer that you could transcribe and it would be publishable. It is the most <laughs> extraordinary thing. Recalling your wreath lectures, you talk about how uh, the judiciary has usurped the legislature throughout many Western countries. And you give the particular example of the United States and the struggle over the Supreme Court. Um, the Roe versus Wade ruling really being one of its most controversial ones. But we now have on the right, on the judicial right, emerging this theory of what they call common good constitutionalism, where they should get the conservative Supreme Court justices to essentially legislate from the bench. If you could advise the six Conservative Supreme Court justices, what would you advise them moving forward? I can't imagine a circum situation in which I would end up advising them, or, <laughs> or a situation in which they would pay any attention to me if I did. It would be quite difficult. I mean, they would have to do a, a, a really significant volte face. Um, not, not that that's beyond them, but I, uh, I don't think it's very likely. I say that because the rationale of Jackson and um, Women's Health Organization, Dobbs and Jackson Women's Health um, Organization, the, the case which overruled Roe and Wade, the rationale of that was that there was no constitutional um, right to abortion, from which it necessarily followed uh, that the right to legislate on this subject reverted to the individual states. And that view has been in keeping with the conservative view uh, uh, on the Supreme Court for a long time, although it was until recently a minority view, uh, that um, you have to, uh, that the federal government and the federal legislature has intruded too far on the autonomy of the states. So to, to say that the states had no more autonomy on abortion um, now than they had in the time of Rowan Wade, except that the, that the rule was that they all had to allow abortion, whereas now the rule is that they all had to forbid it. Uh, I think that that would be a pretty remarkable um, uh, intellectual turnaround. And I suspect that not even the current generation of justices are capable of that. So do you think it's a good thing it's gone back to the States? Uh, well, I do. I mean, I thought that the Rowan Wade was a bad decision because it took a, 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 an intense moral issue on which ordinary Americans, a very large proportion of ordinary Americans, had strong views of their own, and it decided it uh, in a way which marginalized and rendered irrelevant the views of the public. I think that was the main reason why in Europe, where... Um, regulated rights of abortion were introduced by legislation, uh, the issue is pretty uncontroversial now. Um, there's a, 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 in every case, it was done by statute. The only country which doesn't have a right of abortion at all now is Malta. Um, but um, uh, you know, that, is, uh, uh, that is the way we dealt with it. And the result was that people, whatever their initial views, accepted it. They don't in the States because they were never consulted. Um, 
At the same time, although I think that Rowan Wade was a very bad decision, I think that Dobbs, uh, the case that overruled it, was in a way an even worse one because um, uh, uh, I actually believe that there ought to be a, a regulated right of abortion. But I do not believe that it is a fundamental right. I don't believe that it is part of the United States Constitution or any other constitution that I know of. Um, I think it's a matter for legislative choice. And I think sensible legislators will do what most European legislators have done. Um, do the work and yes, make. but um, uh, you, you know, I think the problem about Dobbs was that Rowan Wade subsisted for fifty years, and there was no respectable reason for departing from a judgment that had become part of the basic structure of legal structure of life in the United States. The reasons given by the Dobbs Court for overruling Rowan Wade, in spite of the precedent were, to my mind, wholly unconvincing. Um, I do not agree with Justice Breyer's justification of Rowan Wade in principle, but I wholeheartedly agree uh, with his view uh, that having decided Rowan Wade the way that they did and having in successive decisions of the Supreme Court reaffirmed it, they should not have dis so overruled it. It's a conservative it. case for not changing it. Some years ago, you gave an interview when you were asked about your reputation for academic excellence, your incredible brain and ability to absorb information and so forth. And uh, you were asked, was this always the case or something like that? And you said, well, no. When I was at school, I got fed up with being bottom of the class. And it's bothered me ever you since. I thought this can't possibly be true. <laughs> was it a figure of speech, as it were? No, or? not at all. I was bottom of the class. Um, and I decided at the age of about 15, I remember the precise moment, uh, that I needed to be good at something. And since it was never going to be sport, um, uh, it might as well be the intellectual side of education. I mean, I made a decision that being bottom of the class and being rotten at sport was not a very happy combination. <laughs> It seems a perfectly credible explanation to me. I don't see why you regard it as, uh, as so strange. I wanted to ask you something arising um, from what you said about the nation state. You said that it was coming back. And I wonder what your comment would be about uh, the level of migration which we see in this country now. The figure, the figure of net migration from last year of about 600,000 is widely reported. Do you think that will alter the legitimacy of, uh, of, of this country? And I wonder if you think that, as the Home Secretary does, that um, that should be reduced, whether the means to do so are national or supranational in some way? Well, um, first of all, I don't believe that uh, the nation state is inconsistent with very high levels of migration. I think there are other objections to very high levels of migration, uh, but not that one. The classic example in the modern world of a nation state is the United States of America, which is entirely made up uh, of ethnic and cultural minorities uh, coming from elsewhere. Uh, it's, it's the great migration state. Um, and so I, I, I certainly don't think that the mere fact of high levels of migration 
is going to undermine the nation state. An awful lot depends on the culture within the state, the ability of, of a society to absorb migrants and to um, uh, encourage them to adopt a collective attitudes which are the same as those of the rest of the of the of the original population. Um, I actually think that this country has been quite good at that. Better, for example, than France, to name one obvious country which has also suffered even higher levels of migration. Um, I mean, I'm, I won't go into the reasons for that. I think that they're profoundly profound cultural factors at work here. I, I don't see this as the enemy of the nation state. As to what can be done about it, I mean, the argument against high levels of migration uh, is that it promotes insecurity, it's, it, it strains resources, although migrants also uh, create wealth as well as consuming it. But these are different arguments to the ones, to, to the existence of the nation. Um, what can one do about it if one takes the view that migration is excessive? Uh, the answer is it's a mixture of national and international measures. We have the misfortune to be an island, and it's easier to get into an island than it is to a country with land borders. This sounds ironic, but the fact is if you've got a land border, you can erect a physical barrier and keep people out who do not satisfy whatever test you choose to impose on new arrivals. Uh, if you are an island, uh, you can't erect a barrier in the middle of the sea, so it's a great deal more difficult to control migration. But actually, our own migration figures are not as bad, not as large, as those of Italy, France, Greece, or Germany, for example, or Sweden. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, you know, that we are not... We are not in a unique position here. Notable also that the French are not being especially helpful in yes. solving the boats well, situation over the channel, which again... Well, one can understand that. ...reminds of earlier you know, centuries. They, uh, they have a bigger migration problem than we do, uh, and they are, I'm no doubt, happy to see some of their migrants disappearing across the channel. Uh, <laughs> In the last 10 days or so, we've heard a great deal about the uh, law of armed conflict and international humanitarian law, which seems to be a way of um, possibly stilling Israel's hand. Both concepts grow out of the just war tradition, which um, I'm wondering um, how recognised was that in the Hundred Years' War and did it make any difference? And will international humanitarian law make any difference or is it really about the battle of the narrative? Well that's a number of different questions. Let me try and uh, answer as many of them as I think I can. Um, the notion of the just war is a form of natural law um, and it was much favoured by theologians and civil lawyers. I mean civil lawyers in the technical sense of uh, the successors of the Roman law tradition uh, in the Middle Ages. It had uh, virtually no practical impact uh, on the way that wars were conducted. Current just war theories are very different because they're essentially based on treaties, in particular the various Hague and Geneva conventions, which control the way that wars are fought. Uh, one of the rules, which is 
been in existence at least since 1908, a convention of that year, uh, is that uh, you may not target civilians and you may not conduct operations in a way that will inevitably produce casualties among civilians disproportionate to those among actual fighters. Now, these are quite difficult concepts to apply uh, to a fighting force which is not a disciplined army of the sort that people had in mind in 1908, mm. but is a, a semi-organized a group of, for want of a better word, thugs like Hamas. But so should we try, though? I mean, do you, we should, do you feel like course. that's still relevant? I mean, the difference is that more is expected of organized states like Israel with a high degree uh, of political organization and with disciplined armed forces recognizing uh, an orthodox hierarchy of command. So that uh, it is, seems to me to be perfectly clear that for the Israelis uh, to conduct the war in a basic, on a basis that indiscriminately targets civilians is contrary to international law and has been for quite a number of years. It's also contrary to international law uh, to forcibly displace people from their homes, uh, to blockade them in the way that Israel has been doing for more certainly since 2007. Um, so there are a number of... So you believe issues. Israel is breaking international law? Uh, I certainly believe that it has done. Uh, and that what it threatens to do now would do. You mentioned the destruction of civil liberties that took place during the pandemic. And um, what struck me especially was the abolition of negative liberty, and in, particularly, in particular bodily sovereignty. Given the Hobbesian view that the security of the people is a supreme law, and given that power-hungry despots must certainly share that outlook or be aware of that, What's to stop supranational opportunists who may want a leviathan from seeking or even creating continuous insecurity and crises in order to impose their supreme law? Will we have solutions in search of problems? Well, um, the notion that uh, um, Salus Republica Suprema Lex is actually due to Cicero, uh, and it is, to my mind, complete rubbish. Um, uh, it is, I mean, it's the authorship of Cicero lends it a spurious respectability, but it's actually a response, a, a, a recipe for tyranny at a time of crisis and not necessarily terribly serious crisis. So I've never been impressed by that uh, as a maxim of government. As to whether uh, foreign powers might promote disorder for the purpose of taking advantage of it. Supranational, I think she said. Or, or, or supranational authorities. Um, I don't know of any example where that is actually happening. It's obviously a theoretical possibility. Uh, I don't see that as a serious danger. Uh, it is, for example, said, this is not a supranational authority, but an alien authority, uh, that Disorder in the United States has been encouraged uh, by President Putin. Um, I have no doubt that he's attempted to do so, but there's absolutely no indication that he has succeeded. Uh, America is in a bad place, but the reasons for that are entirely internally generated. I suppose maybe what she was thinking about World Health Organization, organizations like that that might 
try to get the right to dictate pandemic policy in the future. That, that's that, an that's area not, a lot of people are concerned that's about. That's not creating disorder. It, the, fact, the problem about that kind of thing is that it assumes that one size fits all. And that, I mean, not all... Uh, it seems to me that a, a completely uniform, internationally regimented approach to the, dealing with, for example, a pandemic would deprive us of the possibility of experimenting with a different approach. I think that one of the principal lessons of the pandemic was the success of Sweden uh, in achieving a lower death toll than this country and a death toll <laughs> broadly in line with the European average without a lockdown. Um, uh, and it seems to me, therefore, that w if we had been deprived of that possibility by some kind of international arrangement, we would be much poorer. Uh, I'm in favor of a situation uh, in which different pressures, different political situations, different constitutional positions can produce a variety of solutions uh, because they are much more likely to ensure that one of them is right. Mm. I was intrigued by your view that there's been no moral progress since the Middle Ages. And I have in mind, and I forget who said it, that, that man has... Um, two, not three choices, but two, which are to evolve or to involve, to progress or to go backward. Oh, I see. And I just wondered if there's been no moral progress. Do you think there has been moral degradation? No. I think that the, uh, the moral restraints on human ambition have always been relatively weak and still are. I don't think they're weaker than before. I wanted to know, you said previously that you think that... Uh, in the near future, we probably will see a, a major shift towards authoritarianism across the West, and that the U.S. might well be the first country to sort of exhibit it in a proper, concrete way. So, how do you think that might? I mean, what concrete aspects, practically speaking, that might take the transformation of America, both politically and judicially, towards that direction? Uh, I wasn't necessarily thinking of judicial interventions. Um, the United States has a very rigid constitution. It has a fair weather constitution. And the United States has had remarkably and unusually fair weather throughout its history. There have basically been only two periods of American history in which there have been serious economic difficulties. One was in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, and the other was in the 1930s. So that America has experienced an upward trajectory, both in absolute terms and relative to the rest of the world for the greater part of its history. Um, the great destroyer uh, of civil society is the disappointment of entrenched expectations. Uh, that was why most of Europe turned to totalitarianism between the wars. Uh, the depression of the 1930s uh, disappointed <coughs> expectations of continuous upward movement, uh, which had become entrenched for a long time and had only briefly been interrupted by the First World War. I think that the problem that the United States has uh, is that its rigid constitution, uh, and in particular its legislative immobility, we are seeing a pretty spectacular example of that at the moment, uh, is very ill-adapted to deal with a situation of long-term decline. I don't think that the United States will decline in absolute terms, but I think it's pretty well clear that it will decline in 
in its relative position in the world. Um, and I think that the implications of that for jobs that aren't at the, uh, at the cutting edge of technology uh, are really very serious. Uh, and I don't think that the Americans are likely to be very good at managing it. A much more flexible political constitution such as ours has managed to accommodate uh, a significant relative decline since the Second World War rather successfully. Um, and I am concerned that Trump and Trump's doings and followers is not simply uh, an incident related to this particularly extraordinary individual, but is a symptom of a much broader malaise in the, in, in the United States associated with capricious patterns of inequality, with the decline of traditional skills, and with the exportation of jobs, which is the inevitable result of the decline of traditional skills. Um, so that I, I, do, I am not optimistic about the future of the United States, because I think that its current political travails are essentially part of a pattern that is dictated by the general situation of the country and its history, and not uh, an unfortunate accident of the arrival of this particularly monstrous individual. Does um, that mean that you're more optimistic about the UK's prospects? If we're looking, yes. we're going to have to draw it to a close. I'm looking for a slightly more yes. optimistic note to end on here. <laughs> Will our flexible constitution mean that we weather future declines better? Yes, I think it will. But that doesn't mean to say that we will avoid future decline. Um, I think that the political consequences uh, of decline will be much more serious in the United States than they are here. But decline is an uncomfortable experience, whether you accommodate it politically or not. Not 100% optimistic, but I'm going to take it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. But most of all, thank you, Lord Sumption, for sharing your time with us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.